0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: And it's true that Jesus called people to repentance, to to side with God against themselves. That's really the essence of of the initial part of repentance As God says you're guilty, and instead of saying, no, I'm not, God says you're a sinner. Instead of saying, no, I'm not, you say, you're right, I'm a guilty sinner. You're siding with God against yourself rather than opposing God and, well, opposing yourself in the process.
0: Who do you say that I am? Perhaps one of the most important questions that Jesus ever asked, and a question that each of us needs to answer. In Pastor Sam's message, Life's Most Important Question, we are looking at Matthew 16 verses 13 through 23, where Jesus asks this very question of his disciples.
1: Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, we're looking at just verses 13 through 23, Matthew 16, 13, of our message, life's most important question. It was the kind of place you go to get away, away from the crowds, the chaos, the confusion, away from the ever-increasing circle of demands and needs and pressures. Jesus shows it strategically, knowing that as they move further north, close up toward Mount Hermon, almost Assyria, When they came to Caesarea Philippi, he would have time alone with his disciples. It was essential at this point in their training that he pass on to them what was going to be going down once they came back to Jerusalem. You see, next time in the city, Jesus knew he'd be arrested. Jesus knew that he would be beaten and mocked and scourged. He knew that he'd be nailed to a cross. He knew that he'd die and he knew that he'd rise again the third day. In fact, I'm convinced that's what he took them up there to tell them. But before he gets to all of that, he wants to draw them out. He wants to find out, well, how are they doing so far? What have they learned in, in walking with him and, and experiencing him and watching him, listening to him? So, so we read when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Who do men say I am? That area, by the way, of Caesarea Philippi, beautiful to behold. If you get to Israel ever, it's just gorgeous up there. But it was a center of pagan idolatry. There were actually 14 different Syrian temples built there, unto Baal. And Baal worship, if you're unfamiliar, well, some of the most horrific and perverse of all of the worship of false gods in that day, it was the birthplace of the Greek god Pan. Not that he actually was born or ever existed, but that's what the tradition said among the Greeks that, hey, this is where Pan came from. And they actually called the city after his name for a long period of time. It also was a place where Herod the Great had built this great marble, beautiful white marble tribute to, um, and dedicated to Caesar. And so it was a place of idolatry. And it's interesting as we read through these few verses together that we're going to see that was significant, that he chose it not just for its serenity, not just for its beauty, but because of its idolatry. And here's why. He is going to contrast who he is in a revelation from heaven with the false gods that, well, they were well known in the area, worshiped for centuries in that region, so who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The popular opinions regarding Jesus in that day, well, they're very much in line with what people have to say about Jesus in our day. While in that day they likened him to various, well, well-known figures, some from the New Testament, first century, others from the Old There was some rationale behind each of those, well, with the exception perhaps of the first, and we'll talk about that. But each of these have a correlation to how people see Jesus today and what they say about Jesus today. So Jesus asked, well, what are they saying about me out there? We don't know who responded initially. We do know that that uh, they said, so it's likely, probable, that more than one spoke up. As one says, well, some say you're John the Baptist, perhaps another, well, Elijah, well, I've heard that some think you're Jeremiah, well, yet some others say you're one of the prophets. John the Baptist... I'm thinking that Jesus' disciples would have kind of said this with a grin or, or a little bit of a tongue in cheek. You see, Herod had thought that Jesus might be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Herod was having a bad week. He was having a bad life. He'd put John to death and now he hears about Jesus and he's like, oh my gosh, he's, he's back, you know? And, and so I'm thinking when the disciples say, well, some say, knowing Herod thought that, they're thinking, that's, that's funny, isn't it, Lord? You know, they think you're John, your cousin. I mean, come on, you're contemporaries. How much information do you need to find that out? Well, how much research must you do to know? But John the Baptist was a passionate communicator. And and he came out with the word repent. That was his ministry. That was his message. Whatever you were into, repent. That was this thing. Hey, my name's Joe. Who are you? Repent. You know, that was John, you see. And so... As as they examine Jesus' ministry, well, some were saying, well, he's a lot like John. Maybe he really is one and the same with John, those who maybe never met John the Baptist. But John's ministry was about reformation. It was repentance, turning from a life of sin to a life of walking with the Lord. Now, this is pre-church, get this. Nobody's been born again because Jesus hasn't died yet for sin. And so... When they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Today, many people see Jesus that way. Not as John, but as that passionate reformer. The one who did, in fact, after his baptism and temptation, come out and say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it's true that Jesus called people to repentance to to side with God against themselves that's really the essence of of the initial part of repentance as god says you're guilty and instead of saying no i'm not god says you're a sinner instead of saying no i'm not you say you're right i'm a guilty sinner you're siding with god against yourself rather than opposing god and well opposing yourself in the process Some were saying, well, he's Elijah. Now, the scriptures had prophesied that Elijah would return. In fact, we still expect him on the scene at some point. I am one of many who believes that the two witnesses there in the book of Revelation who walk the streets and ultimately are, uh, walk the streets of Jerusalem and they ultimately are martyred on those streets and the world rejoices. Sort of a satanic holiday begins as people just rejoice for the martyrdom and the murder of those witnesses. I believe Elijah will be, quite possibly, one of those two witnesses for a variety of reasons, none of them important to our study right now. But Elijah was all about miracles and fearless boldness. It was Elijah who had stood up to the 450 prophets of Baal. And I find that interesting Is they would have known that, they would have considered it and maybe just thinking, man, we are in the, the center of Baal worship here. I mean, there are temples everywhere in this region to Baal. And they think, yeah, and a lot of people, they liken you to Elijah, standing up to the false prophets, fearly proclaiming the truth, boldly proclaiming the truth. Some said Jesus was Jeremiah. That would have been because of Jesus' great compassion, the obvious ministry of mercy that he exercised to so many, not just working miracles, raising the dead and giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And, and no, he, he was doing it all. And, and, and as he did, well, some were saying, well, maybe Jeremiah, he's so compassionate. He's, he's so tender. He's so caring as Jeremiah had been in his generation or one of the prophets. I mean, even Jesus' enemies said, no man ever spoke as this man. Now, there is something interesting in that they would liken him to a prophet, because in our day, of course, many see Jesus as a great reformer, just wanting to straighten out society, and, and others as a great miracle worker, and they, they come to him seeking and praying and looking for a miracle. Others, they, they, they just are hurting, and they've heard that Jesus cares, and But but here's the thing, when they begin to speak of him as a prophet, you need to know that if Jesus was speaking prophetically, he didn't speak like any of the other prophets, and here's why. The prophets came saying, thus says the Lord. That was their ministry. Sometimes they were just telling the people of God what God had already said. Other times they were saying, hey, here's the future or here's what's coming. Thus says the Lord. But you will never find our Lord using those words. He never says, thus says the Lord. You know why? He was the Lord. He didn't have to, you see. (laughs) Jesus said, you've heard it's been said unto you, but I say unto you. When he spoke, he spoke with absolute authority. He wasn't representing the Lord He was and is the Lord. So the question, who do men say, I, the Son of Man, am? The answer is, well, a reformer, a miracle worker, a compassionate mercy ministry oriented savior, or or this great prophet and teacher. Today, people say those very things about Jesus and yet you could believe all that and still die in your sins. Why? There isn't salvation in any of those realities. Even the miracle of being raised from the dead physically. Well, unless that person were ultimately born again, forgiven all sin, they'd die again in their sin and this time to face a Christless eternity, a godless eternity. So the next question Jesus asked there in verse 15, but who do you say I am? Now, it seems that many responded to the first question, but Peter and Peter alone responds to this second question. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living god the question was asked of all simon peter answered for all you are the christ and note that word the it's significant important here he didn't just say you're the christ son of god you know no he said the christ the son of the living god it's it's three realities in one radical statement one glorious revelation the Christ means the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. When Peter calls Jesus Christ, he is recognizing that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding salvation, that the Old Testament promised a savior who would die for the sin of mankind. And we read in Hebrews that all the blood of bulls and goats ever shed under the Mosaic judicial system. Well, they never really washed away one sin, but they were a daily testimony and a daily recognition that we're sinful. You're holy. We don't approach you apart from sacrifice. Jesus came and did once and for all what All those sacrifices could never do. He atoned for sin. He died for our sins, we're told, was buried and rose again the third day. So when he says, you are the Christ, well, that means the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. From their sins. He's also called the Son of the Living God. And he's the Son. John tells us the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. You see, we who have been born again are called sons and daughters of God, children of God. But we weren't begotten that way. We were born again. We didn't come into this world as children of God. No, we came into this world as sinners, alienated from God. And we, having been born again, are now reconciled to God. Jesus never sinned. Tempted in always we're told, yet without sin. And so he is the Son, the only begotten Son of God. And then he makes it clear, in contrast to the many idols of that area and region, that he is the Son of the living God. You see, that's something Baal wasn't. That's something Pan wasn't. That's something none of the gods of Rome or Greece or pagan Babylon or or uh, the Medo Persians doesn't matter which empire. It doesn't matter which century. The gods that men worshipped were the gods of their own imagination, and they weren't gods at all. They didn't create. They couldn't sustain. They couldn't save. They didn't exist. And that's true today. It's the one problem I have with AA. And I don't want to pick on AA. I want you to know, lest anybody who goes regularly thinks, oh, that's it, he doesn't like AA, I'm out of here. No, I'm all for AA because I'm all for sobriety. I'd much rather have a sober public than a drunk public, and AA helps people stay sober. So I fully support what they do. But the problem I have is that in the AA structure, because they're trying to reach people of all religious and non-religious backgrounds, You kind of can do your thing with God as you know him. And there's a real problem with that because men who don't know the true and living God aren't connecting with any real God. There's no real help in the God of your imagination or in the God of your parents if they dreamed him up or believed in a God that doesn't exist. And so ultimately, a person has to get from sobriety to spirituality because you can die sober and still go to a Christless eternity. And so, am I, am I saying anything against AA? I hope you know I'm not. Now, I, I'm so grateful for anyone trying to help anyone else out there. But bottom line, AA, NA, the, the whole system itself, they can't, because of the nature of how those organizations are run today, they can't tell you, hey, Jesus is the true and living God. He is the only begotten son of the father. He is the only savior, your only hope of salvation. But I can tell you that, see, and I am telling you that, that Jesus says, who do men say I am? They say, well, here's what we're hearing. He says, who do you say I am? Peter blurts out, out, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus' response is telling. This isn't just a radical exclamation from Peter. This is a glorious revelation from the Father, a glorious revelation from heaven. So Jesus answers and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven." You see, life's most important question isn't who do men say Jesus is or even who do you think Jesus is? Life's most important question is who does the Father say Jesus is? And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the Son of God. And Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the express image, the perfect representation of the Father, so much so that Jesus could tell his disciples and did. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know what he's like, you know how he acts, you know what he thinks, because, man, I am truly the perfect and express image of my Father. So, blessed is the man to whom the Father reveals Jesus, and that's what's happened here. He says, Peter... You didn't figure this out. You didn't hear it from others. No, my Father has revealed it to you. I want to tell you something radical and wonderful today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have had the same glorious revelation from heaven even though it may be a person that told you Jesus created you and came and became one of us and lived among us and died for us and rose again the third day, there's forgiveness and freedom from sin in Him. You see, I can proclaim all that, but it's just me saying it until you realize this is truly God's Word. This is truly the Father speaking through a man to tell me the truth about my need for Jesus and His plan for me. I was thinking about this last night and early this morning, kind of all blends together at some point in there. And and I was thinking, you know, today, as, as I stand and share God's word with you, there are hundreds of thousands of people, pastors, worldwide, doing the very same thing. And I was thinking, all the different personalities and voices and attitudes and all that we are and all that we bring to our study of the Bible together, God is using them all but it's ultimately his voice that must be heard. That's why the scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Don't harden your hearts. If you realize, hey, this is a revelation from heaven, not just words on a page, not just a message from a pastor. No, this is a revelation from the Father in heaven. So who does the Father say Jesus is? It is ultimately the issue of life. It is life's most important question. So Peter having said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus having affirmed that and said, hey, man, how blessed you are, Peter, a revelation from the father, not flesh and blood, but my father who is in heaven. And then Jesus gives us a couple first. He says, And I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, in verse 17, he called him Simon, reminding him of who he was and what he'd been before Jesus called him and began to transform him. Simon just means a reed. And you know, the wind blows, the reed bends. That was Simon, vacillating, wavering, uncertain. But Jesus, having gotten a hold of him, he says, look at Peter. Peter, oh, that's completely different. It's Petros. It means a rock. Now, some have imagined that what Jesus is saying here, though, is that Peter... You're such a rock, I'm going to build my church on you. It's going to be glorious, man. You're going to be the foundation. You're going to be the... No, listen, that's not what Jesus is saying. I can tell you that grammatically. He says, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, both mean rock, but the first one means, well, like a a chip off the old block, a, a rock, but not the whole stone, you see. Petra, that speaks of a more radical rock. In fact, there at Caesarea Philippi, if you ever get there, there is this glorious, just radical rock right there where the Jordan kind of mouths out of the ground and begins its run. And, 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 well, it's, it's not half dome. I mean, you've been to Yosemite, you're going to go and say, man, we got it, we got it nailed. I mean, it's nothing. No, but, but for there and for then, it's radical. And, and because that's where they were, I'm thinking Jesus is saying, listen, I'm making you into something solid, Peter. I think he's doing that with a lot of people here. In fact, I think surely as Jesus took those disciples aside and up north and to a quiet place where he could commune with them and communicate with them, that that's what these services become for many of us. A chance just to come aside, to get away from all the stimulation and the the chaos and confusion of our society and just to listen to the Lord as we open his word together and, and feast our eyes and hearts on the things that feed and refresh and cleanse us. Well, here he says, You're Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Before we talk about the gates of Hades, the doors of death, note that Jesus says, I will build my church. It's yet future because the church would not be birthed until Acts chapter 2, not until after the resurrection, not until the word was. Poured out and well, perhaps, perhaps that was the day when the whole thing goes down and where the spirit comes down and where, well, life begins spiritually for that entire three thousand that were added to Christ's disciples that day. But, but, but here's the thing. Jesus says, I will build my church. Not Peter, you're going to build my church and then you'll pass it on to the next guy and he'll pass it on. And No, I'm going to do my work. I'm going to do my thing in people and through people. And I, as a pastor, find great comfort in Jesus' statement that it's his church, it's his work, he'll build it. It means my total responsibility is to be faithful in the ministry he's given me. But When I stand before him, it won't be comparing me with others or it will just be, hey, did you do what I gave you to do? Did you do what I sent you to do? By the way, Elijah outwardly had a very successful ministry since we mentioned him and they did. Jeremiah, outwardly, well, you wouldn't have thought so. If you're familiar with his ministry at all, he's called the weeping prophet because he, he ministered and prophesied for an entire generation without one conversion. Not one person turned to the Lord during his entire ministry. But I'm absolutely convinced that when Jeremiah stood before the Lord, that he heard the same thing Elijah did. Well done, good and faithful servant. And Jeremiah was like, well, you probably weren't paying attention, were you? Nobody repented. I pled with them. I prayed for them. I wept for them. And nobody repented. But see, that's not, that's not Jeremiah's responsibility. That's not Elijah's responsibility. It's not even my responsibility. No. My responsibility is to speak the truth in love. Too many times in my life as a Christian,
0: I have come across professed believers who say they are just not into church. They don't need church to worship God. In today's text, we see the first time ever recorded in scripture that Jesus speaks the word church, where he tells Peter that he is going to build his church. Now, Jesus is not going to build Peter's church or just build any church. He's going to build his church. Jesus' church is certainly not perfect, because it's made up of people, sinners like you and I. But regardless of what we think of the church, we know what Jesus thinks of it. He built it and he loves it. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico and you can visit our website, ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam.